Jane Stork, I watched her last night. I binged watched this new Netflix hit documentary called Wild Wild Country. Uh, she is one of the characters, and Wild Wild Country is the true story of when a controversial cult leader built a utopian city in the Oregon desert, and uh, conflict with the locals escalated into a national scandal. One of the key characters in this new Netflix hit documentary is Jane Stork, who was convicted of the attempted murder of her cult leader's physician, and she was also convicted in the conspiracy to kill a presidential appointee, uh, Jane bought guns and volunteered to kill U.S. Attorney Charles Turner. And the the weird thing about this conversation is that this is the first time, we, usually we do, if we do a, a technical uh, maneuver here on the show, we do it over Skype yes. rather than a phone. But now we're doing a FaceTime and now I'm staring at Jane. And Jane, I'm, I'm so sorry you have to look at my mug this whole conversation, but thank you for joining us. <laughs> it's a pleasure, Drew. Um... Let's go right to your accent because people are going to hear your accent and they're going to have a really, really hard time figuring out where you're from. <laughs> well, I'm born and raised in Australia, spent the first 30 years of my life in Australia. Then I moved to India for four years. Then I moved to America for four years and I've lived in Germany for the last 30 years. There you go. Told you. That's a messed up accent right there. <laughs> um, well, let me ask you, have you watched the documentary yourself, Wild Wild Country? I certainly have. In fact, I've watched it twice. Okay, interesting. So the first time you watched it, how did you feel about it? Uh, the first time, for me, it was really fascinating to see the whole story from start to finish. Because I was in it. And now, I was, now, 30 years later or more, I'm, well, it's a lot longer than that, but I'm now standing back and I'm looking at this picture from, this story from beginning to end, and I found it totally fascinating, really fascinating. There were things that I learned there that I didn't know when I was there, and I realized that um, when I was in the community, I didn't have that overview. I knew about certain things, but I didn't know, I didn't have the overview, mm-hmm. and I think the documentary gives us the overview really well. Did you feel that they represented anyone unfairly? No, no. I th- I really think Chapman and McLean did a really good job because this is a really complex story. It's it has a thousand aspects, and they uh, I have to tell you about those two young men. They weren't even born when that was happening. Crazy. And they- they came across this footage, all this more than 300 hours of archive footage in Portland in the in the museum, and what they immediately saw was that this was a story of social conflict, hmm. and that's what they've presented. And I th- I think they've done a brilliant job. I, I really do as well. As a matter of fact, there are some times there were sometimes when i was watching it by the way i haven't watched the final one number six i'm jonesing to get home tonight and watch the last one number six uh so i stayed up late and watched the whole thing all evening last night just and i found myself at one point i was cheering for osho and at another point i was cheering sort of against him and then i was cheering for you and then i was like oh no and then uh uh, sheila you know it just it brings you back and forth into the tension of of that moment and that time, and then I was—I felt bad for the community, and then I thought the community were a bunch of redneck jerks. And uh. 
<laughs> exactly. And I, that's what I love about it. Because I think when you're watching, so exactly, you describe exactly how I feel about it. Yeah. I think anybody who watches it will at different times be sympathetic towards the one side and then the other and then the other. And that's, that's also a great service that those two young men have done. They haven't taken sides. No. No. And, and that's the trickiest thing to do. I mean, it really is. As Canadians, we're really good at not picking sides. We're like Switzerland in many ways. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to go through some names and just some clarification here. So first of all, uh, Sheila is is sort of, I guess for all intents and purposes, the star of, of this series. And I'd, I want to try to not use too much insider lingo or language here, but Sheila was like the second banana, or really the first banana, because Osho, the leader, uh, let her sort of do everything and brought her along to kind of be the front man for, for the whole deal. Is that fair? That's exactly fair. She was his front man. He was definitely um, calling the shots. He was sitting up there in his house, which was removed from the rest of the community, and he was definitely calling the shots. Sheila spent hours with him every day telling him everything, what was going on, and I, and then he would tell her what to do, how to respond to this, how to respond to that. Right. And that Sheila that you see in Wild Wild Country in the old days when she was his secretary and his front woman, um, that's a part that Bhagwan gave her. He trained her. He taught her to be like that, really aggressive and out there and really uh, drawing attention to herself. Uh, let me see if I get the pronunciation right here. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Did I say that right? right. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's right. But he also goes by Osho. Help me understand those two different names or labels. Well, Bhagwan was the name that he was always given when, uh, when from the time I met him in 19... I met him first in 1960. 76, and he was always called Bhagwan. It meant the Blessed One. Okay. Everybody called him Bhagwan. And after the whole community had fallen apart, um, and Bhagwan had run off or flown away and deserted and all the rest of it, he, and he ended up back in India eventually. And at some point there, so it all fell apart in 85, and I think it was about 87, he announced to the world that from thenceforth he would like to be known as Buddha. Well, all the Buddhists in the world went crazy. They were outraged. And so a couple of weeks later he said, oh, well, it was just a joke, but you call me Osho. Okay. Which means? I don't know what it means. I never used that name. I, I, never used, I never used that name because I wasn't there anymore. I left in yeah. 1985. And as far as I'm concerned, it was a whitewash. It was to completely erase that part of history, this period in Oregon from 1981 to 1985. But see, he, there were many times I heard him say, I am not Jesus. I am not Buddha. And yet he wanted to be called Buddha. Well, but he was like that. <laughs> yeah. He would say one thing today and the complete opposite tomorrow. Right, right. Okay, uh, Sanyasin? Is, a, is a, um, a seeker. Okay. And that's that's just Hindu for seeker, is it? Yes, okay. exactly. Sanyasin. 
And the the city that became in in Oregon, the city I heard.、Uh, so they were the people that lived there were called Rajneeshis. That's correct. And the and it was called Rajneesh. Hold on, Rajneesh Puram. Very good. Okay,、yeah. mm-hmm. that was really hard for me to get through that. So、you did that really.、So、you、hard. did that really well, true. Yeah, Tim. Tim needs to say something. Well, just if you want, if you're interested, it's it, Osho is a、uh, term meaning high-ranking Buddhist or highly respected Buddhist monk. There you go. Wow, he's like the Cliff Clavin of、uh, yeah. Kind of showed you that a long time. Yeah,、ago. well done, Cliff. Thank you very much.、Um, okay, so I, I guess I want to know from you, Jane. You know, who were you before being part of this community? And then, who are you after this community? This whole experience, this part of your life. I mean, this this was such a definitive time in your life. You were immersed in something that you no longer are immersed in. So obviously, I'm very interested in what you believe now and what you believed before. So let's start with before. What did you believe before? And then, sort of, how do you think that played into you believing what you needed to believe to be part of that community? So, what did you believe before? Well, I was born and raised Catholic in Australia, in Western Australia, and Western Australia is truly the end of the world.、Um, Catholicism,、um, as I was exposed to it, was Southern Irish Catholicism. It was very、um, restrictive, very、uh, clear. This is it. This is the truth. We are the chosen ones. Catholic Church、uh, has the truth, and I was very devout. I'm one of five children, and、um, we, my whole family, went regularly to mass on Sundays. Once we were old enough, we went to confession every Saturday,、um, and we took part in all church feasts. and And we basically were good practicing Catholics. And I married、um, a, another Catholic, a young man, a Catholic. Uh, Roger,、um, and we remained true to our faith for quite a long time, but、uh, at some point, Roger was a geologist, and we spent a lot of time in the bush in Australia, where he was doing geological work. And of course, there are no churches out there, no priests out there, and we realised that we weren't being struck by lightning if we didn't go to mass on Sunday. <laughs> So we were we were kind of not taking it quite so seriously,、um, and then let me think. Now we must have been married for I think I have maybe eight or nine years, and we had the same kind of problems, if you like, that all young couples have, and I didn't seem to have any any tools to deal with that,、um, and at some point. I decided I should get some help, and I went to the public health department in Perth. We were living at that time in Perth, or we had a,、um, an apartment there. And the person I met was a Rajneeshi,、huh. and so we never, I, we never got to talk about my problems. Pretty much right away, he was introducing me to Bhagwan's、uh, meditations. I was totally fascinated to Bhagwan's lectures, which were which were recorded. He, Bhagwan would speak in those days in India. He spoke every morning for two hours, or or longer. No notes, nothing. Talking about 
Each month he would have a particular topic. It might be Buddha one month, it might be Zarathustra the next month, it might be Jesus the next month, it might be Lao Tzu the next month, and so it went. Well, as a Catholic girl from Western Australia, this was all completely new for me and completely exciting. I mean, I was just blown away. I thought that was fabulous. And I, I totally, I loved the meditations. They were very active meditations. It wasn't Vipassana watching your breath, watching your thoughts. It, they were very active. And um, I really liked that. And pretty soon I decided, oh, I want to be a part of it. So I became a Rajneeshi before I'd even met Bhagwan. Did your husband join you in this? Did your family join you? Did you have that sort of typical family reaction from your relatives or parents or whatever? Like, oh, what are you doing? You're part of a cult. Uh... Well, my husband, uh, he he always came with me to, to meditations and so on. And we took the kids with us. The children were, we had two two small children then. The kids would play around with the other kids while the parents were jumping up and down and, and um doing dynamic meditation. Um, but once I became a sannyasin, we, we weren't called Rajneeshis in those days because Bhagwan hadn't formed a religion. Uh, a religion. In fact, he spoke against religion. Right. I'll tell you about that later. That's another story that happened in, in America. But um, when I, once I became a sannyasin, that required me, I was given a new name by Bhagwan. Um, I was required to wear orange-colored clothes, not with patterns, just plain orange clothes all the time. I was required to do a meditation every day. And uh, oh, and I was to wear the beaded necklace with a picture of Bhagwan, the mala. And so I started using the new name, and my family, they're just like, oh, they, they just, there was no way they were going to use that name. No way. No. Um, my mom actually made me some orange clothes, my mum was still, she was always very uh, accepting of things. She, she didn't fight against things. My dad, he fought against it, but um, he loved me more than, uh, that wasn't going to cause a rift, if no, you know what right, I mean. Right, right. And, and yeah, and so it was. But we, in that period, we made a lot of new friends, but they were all sannyasins that we met, or young people who were interested in that, that we met at the meditation center. And slowly but surely, our old friends kind of, you know, drifted off. Um, although Roger wasn't yet a, a sannyasin, but he was to become a sannyasin a few months later. So bottom line, what I want to know is what impact did all of this have in your marriage? Initially, um, no great impact. Um, we, we just carried on as usual, in a way. But... Um, after about, I guess we'd been sannyasins for about a year, and we went to India. Roger and I left the children with my parents, and we went to India for a month to meet Bhagwan. Hmm. Wow, that's when that's when Roger actually that's when Roger became a sannyasin. Beforehand, he was just coming along with me. Once we went to India and we met him, then he became a sannyasin. He received sannyas from Bhagwan's hand. So what what happens when because I know that um, in the community marriage was sort of poo pooed upon was it not pretty much um, if for people who lived well but one poo pooed marriage people who lived in the community which we Roger and I and the children later did 
um, they inevitably separated. Maybe not right away. I think Roger and I, we were a couple of years in India before we just drifted apart, if you like. And, and I say drifted apart because once you were living in the ashram and working in the ashram, all those usual things that hold you together, the things that you do together, they just fell away. And it was it was really easy to just drift apart. But was it, okay, you know, look, as a... As an outsider, uh, uh, as a male, as a North American male, you know, my brain goes to, well, of course you drifted apart. Everybody was having sex with everybody. Well, let's put it like this. <laughs> a lot of people were having sex with, with other people, but not everybody. And it was, it was very individual. Let's say that Bhagwan encouraged people to to be free in the terms of attachment. Don't be attached to your partner, to your children, to whatever. And so he would make jokes about permanent relationships. He would say things like, oh, who wants to eat the same meal every evening? Yeah. <laughs> things like that. And so, but it was done in a kind of, yeah, it was, people were, you, we laughed about it. And so it was easy for anybody who felt like, oh, the apartment was getting boring or just being a little bit too demanding or any of that stuff. They, it was easy then to just go find another partner. And the partner you had wasn't supposed to feel jealous or upset or any of that stuff. Of course they did, but um, that was their problem. Okay, so eventually, though, you and your husband were no longer together, right? Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, and you had you brought two children with you. Yes. And forgive me for not knowing this. How many children in total have you had? Two children. Just the two. The okay. Two. All right. Mm -hmm. And when you left, when you hopped on that plane with with Sheila, yes, your daughter came with you. Yes. Your other child? He stayed there. My my children were when I left the community in Oregon in 1985. My son Peter was 16, and Kylie was 14. My daughter. Mm -hmm. And I and their father was there also in the in the community in Oregon. And so when I decided to leave, I went found my kids and I said to them, "This is what I'm doing, and do you want to come with me?" And they went they went off. They talked to their dad. They talked to each other. They talked to their friends. And Kylie came back and said, "Mom, I'm coming with you." And Peter said, "I'm staying with Dad." How, how, what does that, I can't even imagine, right? The, every parent goes, how could you be, you know, torn apart from a child? Or how could you leave a child? And I guess that is un until the child gets to late teens and you go, well, it's pretty easy to leave that kid. He's a pain in the butt, you know. <laughs> well, you have to understand, Drew. Um, quite honestly, when I took my children to India already in the ashram, I basically abandoned them to the community then. The, the, the way it was talked about was that the community was the family and everybody would take care of the kids because it was a community. So all the adults would be, they would all be parents to the children. And although we lived together as a family for the first two years, but then uh, they, uh, a special, it was called the kids' hut, it was a bamboo, a very large round bamboo hut, and it was built. And the children of people who lived in the ashram 
lived in that hut together, separate from their parents. So the kids had been living apart, separate from us already from the time they were, let's say, eight and ten. We saw them every day. I know it's you're shaking your head, and everybody shakes their head, and I completely understand that. But you have to understand that I, the mother of my two children, was completely dedicated to my master, Bhagwan. Mm -hmm. And he had absolute priority everywhere. Well, to the point where, I mean, this is obviously part of the story, to the point where you jammed a needle into his physician's, I don't know, thigh or backside or wherever it was, in order to kill him. Yeah, because I thought, I believed when I did that, that he was going to help Bhagwan on that day commit suicide. And I the, I did not want Bhagwan to die. Never mind if Bhagwan wanted to die. I did not want him to die because he was my world. Mm -hmm. I had been, at that point in time, I had been his disciple for nine uh, uh Nine years, nine years, and I had spent um, eight of those years living in his community, close to him, if mm -hmm. you like, mm -hmm. and that was my world. I had left everything behind me. I had turned my back on my parents, my siblings, my friends in Australia. I didn't even, I, sh I just shrink when I think about it today, but... I just turned my back on them because I had found this great master. I was one of the lucky ones, one of the chosen ones, and all that was just nonsense. It was unimportant. Everything was focused on Bhagwan. Wow. So that the thought of him dying was for me, uh, that that was, oh, I couldn't, that was, it was impossible too much. for me. Yeah, to just too much, too yeah. much. Yeah. Um, yeah. We are on the line with Jane Stork, and um, Jane has this unbelievable, I mean, Jane, really, that's the thing, and you're probably, I don't know, maybe even tired of hearing this from everyone, but what a story, come on, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, you know, ha having just binged watched this uh, Netflix documentary that we're chatting about here, I just cannot get over how one recovers from this, and I, I guess I want to go right to the, to the next point of this story, which is, Looking back, you shake your head and go, how, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth, so tell me if I'm correct or not, but looking back, you, you shake your head and go, how did I get so far gone? How was I so blinded? And now you're out and you're clear and you have been for a while. How do you believe in anything ever again? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good question. It's true. I was a child. Even though when I went off to India, I was 31 years old, I was a child. I was, I had the magic thinking of a child. Mm -hmm. And for me, Bhagwan was a combination of dad, my dad. I had a very strong father, a very loving father, but a very strong character. He was definitely the head of the family and he made the decisions and he took care of things. He was a good Aussie bloke. He was. So Bhagwan was for me a combination of this very strong father figure and God. And I, I just thought I was the luckiest person on earth because it, my God was not sitting up there on some cloud, you know, watching me as she 
doing it right. Oh well, oh she's doing it good now, so I'll give her a, a I'll, give her a bicky. I'll give her something good. Oh no, she's doing it bad. Now. <laughs> but my God, and it, for me, it was the only God. He was sitting there in India. I could go and sit at his feet. I could even ask him questions and talk to him. So, but I, I see very clearly now that I was a child and I had this magical thinking. I was not coping with life, real life. I had problems in my marriage. I, I was just not coping. And so I ran away. Hmm. It was all about running away. And I burned all my bridges because I thought if I burn all the bridges behind me, then um, it's there, back there and it'll never catch up with me. Well, what I found was... And I stayed in that magical thinking until the moment I tried to kill the doctor. And then I knew, I just knew, I had gone, I'd stepped over the pale and I knew I had to leave. Impossible as it was for me. But that act, violent act against another person, mm-hmm. that was the turning point for me. And I couldn't leave right away because I just... Even though I knew I had to leave, my legs wouldn't take me out of there. I needed a little longer. I needed another six weeks. But I knew I had to leave. It was in that moment that I, for the first time, in ever such a small way, began to face reality. Until that time, I was not facing reality. I was running away from it. So do you blame it all on on sort of a childlike naivete or well and and if you do i'm assuming you've grown up out of that and maybe you and maybe you could cut yourself some slack and go "Ah, i was a kid you know we all believe dopey things or you know got into weird stuff when we were young right is that how the thinking goes yeah it goes back a little further um when i was five years old my oldest sister uh was desperately ill she had tb meningitis family thought she would die she was was in hospital for almost a year. Uh, the illness also destroyed her hearing center. So afterwards, she did survive, but she was deaf. And in that year, when my sister was in hospital, my mom and dad sent me to live with a with a sister of my mom's, my auntie. She was a, a wonderful woman. She was just great. She had a daughter my age, and mom and dad thought that was a really good thing. But in my childish five-year-old brain, mm-hmm. or whatever. It all took so long. I didn't understand what was going on. And I, somewhere along the line, I figured out that my family didn't want me. And then when I was nine, um, I'd been ill. The doctor said I got to go to a warm climate. I was sent to boarding school. So this kind of suspicion that my family didn't want me kind of grew, you know. And I think it all goes back to that. It all goes back to the time when my sister was ill. Mm-hmm. And um, when I ran off to India, I was finding a family that did want me. We were all wearing orange. We all had these names. And I fitted in just great. Everybody loved me. You know, we were all friends with each other and good to each other. Um, But it was all just nonsense. Can I say, and I'm going to bring Tim in on this conversation, because as I was watching the documentary, and even as I'm hearing you speak now, Jane, I know that the community I got involved with was not a cult, but the parallels 
of your story and my story were very similar. I was adopted. I had that abandonment rejection thing swimming around in my head for whatever, you know, whether my parents were amazing. So they had nothing to do with them. But I was just a rat bag growing up as a punk kid and and, uh, very different from my family. And they shipped me off to boarding school and then to a Christian camp. And at this Christian camp, I found acceptance. And Tim and I, that's where, yep. where, where we met when we were yep. like 13. Yes. I found acceptance. And, and uh, if you buy into the to the uh, to the Jesus stuff there, you know, maybe the girls would buy you an ice cream cone. I don't know, whatever. That kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also remember working our tails off at this place for no money. You got room and board. And it's very similar to that kind of like it was like the amount of hours digging post holes and throwing hay bales and cleaning out stalls and mowing lawns and weed eating and I mean just everything I never worked so hard in my life but we did it because of the buzz and the community and belonging and it was for a higher calling it was for you know clean the toilet like you're cleaning Jesus toilet kind of thing exactly well I cleaned toilets in India for the first year I was there and I used to tell myself oh great one day I'm going to clean book one's toilet you know so that's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And how did I survive all this? Because once I left, first of all, the first thing that was really important was that I left. I did the impossible. Really the impossible. Yeah. And I got Sheila to thank for that because Sheila decided to leave. And that gave me the, that really gave me that last little, yes, I can do it. Mm. If she can do it, I can do it. Um, and the other thing is, that after I'd been in prison and all the rest of it, I went back to Australia and my parents were there waiting for me. And they they just opened their arms and they were there and they never said anything, oh, you bad girl, none of that. They just accepted me. Whatever I had done, whatever it was, they didn't care. I was home, I was safe, and that gave me... that. That, I think, was the most important thing for me. Sure. I came home, because I was still a kid, still. Emotionally, I was 42, and I was 41, and I was still a kid. That's when I could get my feet on the ground, because I had my parents behind me. And then I came to Germany six months later and started running a juice bar. And at the juice bar, I met my husband, my present husband, George, and we married um, maybe... A couple of years later, and George gave me the stability and the security that I needed to deal with my story. Those two things were for me critical. Okay, so since the God of your youth you saw as the, you know, old man in the clouds with the long white beard looking down, you know, giving you a bicky when you did something right... Exactly. And that God was didn't kind of work for you. And then the the next God that you you placed in front of you, um, well, that didn't quite work for you either. No. So that's a little summary there. Well, he did that to be just like the first one because when I left, or oh, when Sheila left, actually, I just got caught up in the in the in the whirlwind. Really, right? right. He, he hardly knew where I was. But but when I left, he got mad. And he, he called the police and he said, you know, they've done this and they've done that and come and get them. And if you don't get them, I'll send my people to get them. So it was just the same. Same really. God. Same God. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So what do you do with God now? Yeah, well, I have a problem with God. <laughs> you think? 
have a problem with God in the sense that the word God has been so trashed yeah. and is so trashed that it's hard for me to use that word. Hmm. Um, I certainly have nothing to do with any kind of organized religion at all. And maybe it's best described, you know, my mom, she was actually a Protestant, but she became a Catholic so she could marry my dad. Right. And she was very true to her. She did, she did everything right. And they were married, happily married for 65 years. And when my dad died, my mom came to Germany to live with George and I. And I said to her, Mom, I'll take you to church, every, to Mass every Sunday. And she looked at me and she said, there's no need for that. I have my own relationship with God. Nice. Really nice. So good. You know, oh, our journeys, there's so many similarities here. So I, yeah, I've stepped away from uh, organized religion as well, having been a, a pastor and uh, other words that rhyme with that. Um, so mm -hmm. over the years, you know, the one thing that really impacted me was when I read, and I've become friends with this guy. His name is Paul Young, William P. Young. He wrote a book called The Shack. Turned out to be a big international bestseller as a work of fiction, but it turned it into a movie. And when I read that book, it flushed out so much inside of me and these emotions. You know when you cry so hard, snot comes out of your nose? That's mm -hmm. what happened to me. And it flushed out so much because that was the God that I've that I've been looking for. This was the God of the Bible, not the God of religion. And so, anyway, that was my journey, being able to really lean into the God of the shack, which I still hope exists. I think that's what faith is really about. You know, I, I, I'm not certain about anything, Jane. And I mean, certainty isn't even a word you can use anymore. Can you? No, no way. No. no. Um, okay, well, looking back on the whole thing, the journey makes sense. I get it. But let's talk about self-forgiveness. How's that been for you? For me, it was more, it's been a journey of taking responsibility. Yeah. Because um, you said something to me. You said, I said, I watched the doc and I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's a big pastor dude. And he said, that's the woman I resonate with. That's the one. I want to know her story. There was something about her. And you said to me, well, I'm thankful I did the work prior to them doing this this documentary series. We're talking about Wild Wild yes, Country. Yes, yeah. So tell me about the work. Well, the work was facing reality, facing the way things really are, not not it, closing your eyes to the bad things and, and dreaming in, into a dream world that's not there, mm. but facing reality and accept and facing accepting the responsibility of what I had done. That was really, that took years. It was a process. It was a real process. I it would take steps and then there would be a long period where I would just stay at that place. And I did not take full responsibility until my son, Peter, developed a brain tumor. And he was in Australia. There was an international arrest warrant out for me. I was safe in Germany. The German courts had had protected me in Germany, but I couldn't leave the country. And I realized that in order to see my son again, I had to go to America, throw myself at the mercy of the court without any guarantees and own it. Accept whatever the judge decided. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it was that process of going to court. First I went and I pled guilty to everything. The judge in that moment gave me back my passport and told me I could travel to Australia until um, I was to come back four months later for sentencing. I don't think that's ever happened before. <laughs> I don't know, but wow. it was amazing. He honored what I had done, and I came back four months later for sentencing, and I had to make a statement. I was expected to make a statement to the court, and it was preparing that statement that was the final step I had to take in truly, truly accepting the responsibility for what I had done. Look at you. You're even getting emotional about it now. Yeah, I That's do. That's a beautiful I, – I have the privilege of being able to see you through FaceTime here. What a beautiful look you have right now. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was my hardest work, to really accept that, that part of me and what I had done. You know, uh, let's – I'm just looking at the at the clock. You and I could obviously talk forever, um, but it's radio, so that means we, we've got to move on. But before we say goodbye to you, Jane, um, I don't know if this sounds a little trite because I don't really know you that well, and you're you're way down the road as far as experience and this journey that you've been on and all the stuff you've had to process. You know, I've had to process my own stuff, but I'm so proud of you. Thank you, Drew. <laughs> Thank you. That's lovely. You know, I wrote a book about this. Yes, yes, we should talk about this book because it's still available. You can get this book, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's called Breaking the Spell, My Life as a Rajneeshi and the Long Journey Back to Freedom. And the website you can go to is janestork.eu, janestork.eu. Did I get all that right? Yeah, you can get the book at Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, I've heard on of Amazon. It. We self-published. Yeah, well, that was a good move. I can imagine the sales must be... Peaking a little bit since the, the documentaries come well, out. You know, it was published first published nine years ago by Pan Macmillan in Australia, but it's only been available in Australia and New Zealand. And since the documentary is true, um, that's when we self-published. Actually, we suddenly realised people were were contacting us and say, uh, "We can't get your book." You know, it, we they won't sell it to us outside of Australia, so we we put it on Amazon. I'm sorry you lost your son. Yeah. How old was he? He was 37. And he was married and, and he had has, he left two beautiful children. Hmm. One of whom is just like him. Oh, yeah? <laughs> uh, Jane, I, you know, so, so want to keep going with the conversation. I just can't. Uh, but I want to thank you for spending so much time with us. I want to thank you for this sort of I don't know, I see modeled of uh, three things that are the most important to me, and I think that's what people are picking up in this documentary. Authenticity, teachability, and vulnerability. Those are the three things I see leaking out of you. Uh, and especially when I think you came out of an environment of inauthentic authenticity. In other words, there was this authenticity presented, but there was an inauthenticity about that authenticity. Does that make yes. sense? Yes, totally, completely. Yeah. 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 You anyway. got it. Such a pleasure to chat with you, Jane. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Drew. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jane Stork on the Drew Marshall Show. What a journey, man.